The Wainwright Prize, the stories behind the books, brought to you by PlanetPod. Welcome to this special edition of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, celebrating the 2020 Wainwright Prize in which we bring you the stories behind the books through interviews with this year's shortlisted authors. Now in its seventh year, the Wainwright Prize for UK Nature Writing is awarded annually to the book which most successfully inspires readers to explore the outdoors and to nurture a respect for the natural world. The prize was founded in memory of Alfred Wainwright, by Francis Lincoln, the publishers of the famous fell walking series, The Pictorial Guides to the Lakeland Fells. There's a strong link between walking and writing, whether it's striding across fells or meandering through woodland, the very act of walking seems to unlock and release creativity. What better way to celebrate and commemorate that most famous of walkers than through this prize? This year's prize has been extended to include a second category for books about global conservation and climate change. And the two shortlists reflect the breadth and range of contemporary nature writing, both in the UK and around the world. Rebirding by Ben MacDonald makes the case that Britain has all the space it needs for an epic return of its wildlife. Only 6% of our country is built upon. Contrary to popular myth, large areas of our countryside are not productively farmed, but remain deserts of opportunity for both wildlife and jobs. It is time to turn things around. Praised as visionary by conservationists and landowners alike, rebirding sets out a compelling manifesto for restoring Britain's wildlife, rewilding its species and restoring rural jobs to the benefit of all. It's a huge pleasure to have the author Ben MacDonald with us today. Ben, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Hello, good evening. Nice to be here. Well, rebirding's been doing brilliantly and we've had you on the pod before and it's, so it's lovely to have another chance to talk more specifically about the book. But perhaps for the benefit of listeners, could you give us a little bit of context about how it came about and what, what sort of inspired you to write in the first place? Sure. I mean, I've been watching wildlife not much um, after I could sort of walk and hold a pair of uh, binoculars and I grew up in my childhood raising butterflies and learning how they worked and I suppose that led to a love of birds and a love of flight. Um, my father used to take me to nature reserves in Norfolk, you know, down on the Pembrokeshire coast, up at Slimbridge, of course, near where I grew up. Um, and I suppose I've always developed from a very early age a very deep love of the natural world, of being out in it and of all that it gives you in terms of enjoyment. Um, but I think as you get older, you begin to realise that all the species that you're watching are becoming scarcer and you're going to places where you heard a cuckoo the year before and there's no cuckoo you're going to places where you saw willow tits and they've all gone and of course you can't care about the natural world without wanting to keep it and protect it and um, restore it so I suppose this book started in around 2012 uh, writing for Birdwatching magazine just looking at a species at a time as you know conservation often does you know, willow tits, nightingales, uh, turtle doves, redback shrikes, you know, looking at why these birds used to be common and why they're vanishing. But I think the book really came of the, the amazing travel opportunities that I had um, working on one of the David Attenborough series to see what life is like when in a state of more undiminished abundance, I suppose, not only biodiversity, but abundance. What ecosystems look like, even farmed farmed ecosystems in Eastern Europe, um, grasslands in Mongolia, um, woodlands in India, what does 
what does the natural world look like before it has been so heavily depleted? And sadly, you know, we face this enormous contradiction in the United Kingdom in that we may have millions of wildlife lovers who pour billions into the economy. And yet, when it comes to the efficacy of our conservation, we are amongst the most nature-starved countries in the world. We are profoundly ineffective at saving many of the species that are vanishing right in front of our eyes, species as humble as the house sparrow, the starling, uh, the turtle dove, which really only needs weeds. We have weeded the turtle dove out of existence. So it's very hard not to come back to your own country, very um, sad, without a sense that we are all being robbed of what should be rightfully ours. And that, I suppose, was the driving motivation for writing the book. That set it for us really clearly in that kind of more global um, context. And obviously, you knew you're on the shortlist for, for global conservation writing. Um, but, but with a very strong focus on the UK, why is it that we're, you know, we're, we're pouring all this money into the natural environment and, you know, so many people, members of the RSPB and all of the other organisations? Why is it that we're not getting it more right what are we doing? Is it a farming problem or is it a land it's, management problem? It's, or? It's, it's certainly a farming policy problem rather than a farmer problem. And I choose those words very carefully. But mm. I think everything that has happened in Britain in terms of the removal of our natural heritage has not only happened earlier in our history than in other European countries, but it has happened with much more ferocity. You know, the, the sheer determination to eradicate the white-tailed eagle of the hen harrier, the clearance of every last inch of scrub, the intensification of deer estates, grouse moors, forestry plantations. And I say quite legitimately in rebirding that we have become a nation of six types of farm. There are the deer farms in Scotland that really produce huge quantities of red deer, but relatively little else. There are the grouse farms in our uplands that are heavily optimised for the production of red grouse and, of course, a few other species, but do not resemble the ecosystems that you see in comparable landscapes in Scandinavia, where hunting is practised as a much more extensive, low-intensity um, pastime. Our arable fields have, you know, removed 97% of our turtle doves compared to 50% in Germany and close to 0% in Romania, where the turtle dove remains a very common bird in our farmland. Our dairy fields, um, our sheep pastures have become ridden with chemicals. So, and of course, our forestry is very heavily reliant on um, single species like spruce covering extraordinary areas, three times the size of the Lake District. So then you look at what space is left between those land uses for more natural outcomes, whether that's something as farmed as an orchard or as wild as a salt marsh. Well, there is hardly any extra space. And the problem with uh, nature reserves, uh, wonderful as they are, is that you cannot manage ecosystems as postage stamps. Nature needs space. It needs continuous landscapes to survive. And if you look at Eastern Europe, if you look at Germany, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, you're seeing really large continuous tracts of habitat that is amenable to the natural world. Um, and in Britain, we are not. 
but that is not a question of there being a lack of space economically or socially. Um, a lot of areas of Scottish deer estate have a higher level of depopulation than Montana in the United States, um, creating jobs, you know, one job for every seven square kilometres. So we have the space. 94% um, of Britain is not built upon. It's simply how do we optimise that for better outcomes, not only for the natural world, but for rural communities, many of which have been in collapse over the course of centuries. Yeah, and I think that's partly why your book is such a, an inspiring kind of manifesto for change, because it isn't just about, oh, we need to create natural spaces to bring back species, important as that is. It's actually about rebalancing rural economies, isn't it, and creating a new way of living alongside and with and from the land that we you know, have lost um, for centuries and that we had generations ago we no longer have. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about the traditional orchard, which once covered almost all of Herefordshire, large areas of Worcestershire, Gloucestershire, Somerset and Devon, you know, that is the perfect sharing arrangement between livestock farming, veteran wood pasture as a habitat and fruit and cider production. There was nothing wrong with that model. It was perfect. It is one of the most perfect sharing arrangements between people, wildlife and biodiversity. But, you know, the perverse outcomes that we have paid for have seen orchards grubbed from the landscape for the best part of a century, but particularly under the common agricultural policy. So it, it's not simply a case of farmers doing the right or the wrong thing. It's that society has most often paid them to do not only, in my view, the wrong thing ecologically, but has paid them to act against their own long-term interests in, for example, flood prevention, fruit production, um, keeping things native, mm. uh, cutting down the number of exports from outside Britain, which of course undermine British farmers. Um, so you have these models like the orchard, which could be wheeled out at a much larger scale and remove the so-called conflict between, you know, um, large-scale tree planting, farming. You know, these, these things integrate far better in other parts of Europe than they do here in the UK. You know, in the hills of North Spain, it's kind of, you know, much more of a continuous grazed wood pasture. It's a, a lower-intensity landscape, but you're also getting more um, variety of yield of the land than you are in many places here in the UK. Yes, and there's a real urgency to this conversation as well, isn't there? Because, and, and I'm sure, you know, maybe that's what prompted you to, to write it now, but there's this sense that, you know, we really have got to tackle this before it's too late and the means to tackle it are not, as you've outlined, not that complex. It's about a shift in thinking and a shift in policy. Um, can, can I ask you about the process of writing? Because you're a filmmaker by profession. How different does it feel to you to, to be putting you know words on a page as opposed to images into in into a digital format that you're sharing on screen is it is it a different process of creativity or is it one that just feels like a continuum and something that you've that you that you're happy with as you are making films that's that's a really interesting question for me a lot of the skills are the same so a lot of the skills in writing i've learned i haven't actually learned from writers I've actually learned from seasoned natural history producers under whom I've been fortunate to study and to learn. So, you know, wildlife storytelling involves taking science, 
uh, correctly and in context. But you have to also make things accessible and magical and enchanted. And you have to appeal to people who may not have the patience to read through a 10,000 word scientific paper on the decline of the Redback Shrike. <laughs> and so you have to take enormous quantities of potentially inaccessible scientific information and you have to turn them into completely correct but relatable stories that people can understand. And I'm not saying that in a condescending way. I mean, the readership of Rebirding and many other books is extremely informed, but it's simply a case of making it accessible whilst not getting so lost in the details mm. that you fail to see the bigger picture. And I think if there's one you know mild criticism I have of some conservationists in this country is we get so lost in the detail. For example, the starvation of birds is a narrative that affects almost every species. The vanishing of seeds, of insects, of um, of beetles, of grasshoppers, of the hairy caterpillar moths that the cuckoo requires. That is essentially the same narrative. So if you look up enough, you begin to be able to join the dots. You begin to be able to join the details back up into the bigger picture. Now, that is something that you have to do as a filmmaker in order to take the audience on a journey of understanding. And in, in many ways, that is the same technique of storytelling if you like that I am using or trying to use in the book and it reflects your lived experience I mean you talked about the kind of the inspiration of traveling to other places across the world and, and to other parts of Europe and that is reflected in in some of the passions that come out in your book I mean Ben this is obviously a podcast so people can't see but I'm hoping they might have picked up on social or they will pick up on social media the extraordinary cover design of the book tell me where that came from Funnily enough, um, a friend of mine was walking past a shop window in Wiltshire and they saw a, um, an, a graphic painting, if you like, called King of the Highlands by an artist called Graham Carter. And it's this enormous, imposing red deer stag, but it is made of all the constituent parts of its habitat, trees, heather, rolling hills. And I thought that idea perfectly encapsulates everything I'm talking about in the book, which is that we can't just look at species as being isolated units. You know, they embody the landscape, they're part of the landscape, and they shape the landscape. So we tried a few different species in the style of the pelican, and we started with a curlew. And, I, you know, obviously an iconic species that's vanishing, you know, species I care about very much, but it just didn't quite fit that particular style. And then we tried a rough um, a bird that's vanished from our wet grasslands and floodplains as they've been drained. And I sent it to a few people and they said, why is there a fat chicken on the front cover of your book? And I said, okay, well, that was, you know, they rather unceremoniously deflated that particular idea. So then I said, well, you know, um, to hell with it, let's do a pelican, you know, the largest bird ever to have flown in terms of wingspan, as far as we know, over the British Isles in recent times, a true native species that even a large proportion of bird watchers, of course, don't remember was native because it vanished in Roman times or a little bit later. And of course, as soon as we tried a Dalmatian pelican, it had this kind of presence and austerity and once we'd got the pelican right I said well of course it has to be the Avalon marshes behind the Avalon marshes as they could be in the future if instead of desperately fighting climate change and the prospect of rising sea levels we actually embrace 
what a floodplain can give all of us. And Graham, um, who's a fantastic artist, worked with that idea um, really over the course of about 12 iterations until we finally arrived at the, at the cover. So the cover itself is the part of that manifesto, isn't it? It's that call for change and for a, re, a restoring, not necessarily a rewilding, but a restoring of the landscape as, as it could have once been. Um, I'm going to call, ask you for a call to action in a minute, but I have to ask you this because we've been asking all of the authors on, on this series. Where do you do your writing? I mean, is it a thing that you snatch a few moments in between rough cuts of the films or are you very disciplined and sit away in a shed for weeks on end to finish it? How does that work for you as a writer? Well, it's funny. So for the first three years of writing this book, I was out of the country, sometimes for almost half the year. So I would keep notebooks of anything that I saw that I thought was ecologically of interest, the way that horses shape the environment in Mongolia, the way that the East European farming system is so fantastic for bird abundance, whereas ours isn't. And I was writing constantly, you know, words, scruffiness, mess, all of these things that are good for wildlife and, you know, what I was seeing in different countries. But really, I'd say the book only took or started taking shape in January 2018. So in terms of where I wrote it, I'd say it was scribbled in a notebook in around 30 countries. And then it was finally assembled, I'm afraid it's very boring, on a... Uh, on a MacBook, uh, looking out of my garden window. Sounds perfect to me. And that lovely idea of those writer's notebooks, you've just conjured up that image in my head so beautifully, of little piles of books and scraps of paper. Um, we have to call it to a close, which is such a shame because we could talk about this book forever. Uh, what would you like listeners to do as a result of hopefully buying and reading your book? What's your call to action around conservation, be it global or just here in the UK? I think there are a lot of things in the book that it would be easy to mistake for a fantasy because they haven't happened yet. But it's very important to remember everything I'm describing in the book has either already happened in other countries or has perhaps never been lost in other countries. Of course, because most bioabundance, most biodiversity, most of our you know, truly beautiful wilder landscapes have been lost in the UK, you know, there is a very long journey, um, a journey of decades, if not centuries, to bringing them back. But I think I would urge anyone to start small and get bigger. If we can restore our villages to sort of a chaotic, bushy state as they are in Eastern Europe, then we begin to be able to live with creatures like beetles and ants and eventually perhaps more charismatic animals like white storks. It becomes far easier to live with beavers and wild boar. And this is what many countries in Europe are much better at. It is a cultural mindset. It's not an economic mindset or a social mindset. It is a cultural attitude to sharing with the natural world rather than bending it to our will. And I think that's something any one of us can change, is a mindset. We can't all buy enormous shooting estates and start putting trees back on the hills. We can't all be buying floodplains and releasing pelicans. But if we begin to change in the way we think about our relationship with the natural world, it's remarkable how many of the apparently insurmountable obstacles may come to disappear over time. 
a true author's response, a call to think differently. And um, uh, I'm sure that I'm reading the book. Once people have read the book, they will certainly be on the same page, dare I say that, as you are. It's been a huge pleasure. Ben, thank you so much. Thank um, you. Re Rebirding is published by Pelagic, and you can find details of it and all the other shortlisted titles on the Wainwright Prize website and also on our website, theplanetpod.com, where you can read short extracts from the books. Um, thank you for listening, everyone. I would urge you to go out and buy this beautiful book, not just for the cover alone, but for, for the words inside. And Ben, huge luck to you for the prize. And thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Stories Behind the Books, the Planet Pod series on the Wainwright Prize 2020. You can find details of all the shortlisted authors on the Wainwright Prize website or on our Planet Pod website. Do look them up and find out more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>